The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? The Mike Wise Show came out about three months ago on Pure Hoops Media. It's had tremendous guests. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have Jeannie Buss give me an hour. I've, had fortune, I've been fortunate enough to, for Isaiah Thomas to give me an hour and a half. And I've been, uh, I guess, unfortunate that Frank Isola even came on the program. But nonetheless, I have now probably a guy that, uh, and I don't say this lightly, not only did he mentor me in journalism and sports journalism in many ways, he mentored me in life. I mean, he, you know, at a time when I was thinking that I could actually put together a family and a, and a real balance as far as work and life, uh, Harvey Aridan had that and he kept that. And shoot, I, I can't say enough about him as a person. Now we're going to talk to him about the professional. Hello, Harv. Hey, Mike. Uh, it's funny you should say that about life because I was, I've, I'm in the process of writing a piece that the Times has, uh, the New York Times has a page two feature now that is sort of an inside the story kind of feature, right? And they asked me to do one as the NBA playoffs get underway this coming week. Mm -hmm. And so I was just sitting here writing about, you know, the sacrifices that people who cover the NBA make on a routine basis year after year. And I was about writing about how in 1993, when the Bulls were playing in, in uh, Phoenix in that famous game six, how mm. at home my wife uh, was like eight months pregnant with my second son. And we were in the process of selling a co-op in Brooklyn and buying a house in New Jersey. And this was all unfolding the week that that would have been game seven on a Wednesday night had John Paxson not hit that <laughs> three-pointer Sunday night. My marriage, my life hinged on that three-pointer in the air. So you know, I, maybe I wasn't the greatest role model because if that shot clangs off the rim, I'm probably you're, you're, divorced. You're, and, and you're, but, you would, you know. but you would have made it to game seven, damn it. Right. Would have been two more days in Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> And you know what? Uh, and, and they would have not been worth it because uh, Beth, whom I've met and talked to often, and Charlie and Alex, your sons, who uh, who basically you raised with Beth, uh, turned out unbelievable. And what you know, I could get sappy for five hours here. If you if anybody out there doesn't know, Harvey Arrington did not dunk on Moses Malone in the seventies. He did not um, shoot own the. Uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies before they went to Memphis. What Harvey Aridan did was chronicle the games first um, in the tabloid world for, I want to say the daily news for many years, right? No, I actually, uh, the post, the New York post. I worked at the post. I began at the post. I was, uh, 
Pete Vesey's caddy, um, and uh, uh, start, spent, let's say, 77 to 83, early 83 at the Post, and then moved to the Daily News for eight years before I wound up at the Times. So, uh, yeah, I covered the Knicks uh, at the Post and uh, moved on to the Daily News where I escaped the Nick beat thankfully, uh, and became the league-wide writer, and then on to the Times, uh, where I was a general columnist for 15 years, but always with a love for the NBA and, and uh, would spend a good deal of my time around the garden and around, you know, the, the, uh, the, whatever it was, the league power venue at, of, the, uh, of that era, of the era. Yeah, he, and he's written several books. Um, I, I'm bringing him on to promote one, because not because he's basically the curator and the main author of the book. It's called Elevated, The Global Rise of the NBA. It's from Triumph. The forward's written by Jeff Van Gundy, who I had to read it again because Jeff has never been kinder to the, the, the press or the Times. Um, and he was kind and he was thoughtful. But, um, but more, yeah, I would, I'd have Harvey on any day of the week. But this book, I'm like going through it and I'm realizing I have like 10 pieces in there. You you picked 10 of my stories uh, for, for a book that is essentially about, and I'll, and I'll read the actual from the press release. It's like Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, these NBA stars will always be synonymous with athletic brilliance beyond their achievements on the court. They grew to become international business tycoons. Hollywood celebrities and agents of social justice. They represent how the NBA grew into a worldwide phenomenon that transcends sports. And you really go into, um, you really pick some of the, what I would call the most, I don't know, telling illustrative stories that, that mirror what happened and how the NBA went from, really transitioned from the Magic Bird days to Michael Jordan and and now you know handing off the torch to Kobe and LeBron, um, it's it, and shoot I, I still think it's going to um, I still think it's going to trump football at some point. It might take another ten years uh, as we realize what what it does the, the bad it does for our brains. But look, the, I, I'd like you to just tell me the the background of not how you got the job for this book. But what made you pick the pieces you did? Well, first of all, Mike, let me just say, since you did extol me a little bit when uh, in your introduction, that the pieces I chose that were written by you, uh, I, and I told you this a couple of weeks ago when we spoke, that I think I would say that overall, I mean, there are a whole bunch of uh, very reputable NBA journalists, uh, or, or let's say journalists who have uh, written a lot about the NBA in this book from, you know, Ira Burkow, George Vesey, to current uh, Times NBA uh, writers, Mark Stein and Scott Cassiola. Um, yeah, Selena Roberts, Lee Jenkins, Roberts, Howard, Lee Howard Jenkins, Beck. You know, Chris Broussard, you know, I mean, yeah. there's a whole host of people who have come through the Times staff covering the NBA. And on the whole, your work, I think, you know, that is in this book, Trump's, pardon the expression, but um, 
all the others. I mean, the the, the work uh, that you did in your time. How many years was it for you at the time? Ten years. Ten years. Ninety four I mean, to ninety four to two thousand four. You did brilliant feature work on the NBA at the times and raised the bar. I thought on the kind of stuff that Times should have always been doing and did some. I'm not going to say it was never any, you know, really good feature writing at the Times, but on a consistent basis, really pouring and, and burrowing into the powerful personalities that make up, you know, the NBA and makes these people national and international phenomenons. And so, you know, I salute you there. As for the book itself, um, I left the Times full-time staff in 2016 after the U.S. Open and uh, tennis, uh, which is another one of my great loves. And I recall making, you know, they had one of those toasts uh, in the office, and um, <laughs> you were there. And uh, it was with uh, Carl Nelson, a beloved night sports editor, who also left the staff at that time with me. And I remember, you know, standing up to you know, say a bunch of things and my family was there and, but I remember making a point of saying, you know, that running through that, you know, I, I probably left a few people out, but running through that roster of people who had covered the NBA during my time there. And, uh, you know, it just struck me then. And, I, and that kind of planted the seed for this particular book, you know, because I'm not a great fan of, anthologies of a particular writer, you know, where they just throw together a bunch of stories and, mm -hmm. you know, here's the work of Mitch Album or, you know, so-and-so. No, you know, nothing against Mitch Album's work. It's, you know, it's brilliant. But, but, but I just don't understand why those are even books. They're just collections of, of work that you can find, you know, in the archives, usually online or at the library. So, um, if, you know, but but in thinking about, you know, again, the the, the quality of, of, of reporters and writers that we had at the times, I started to think about if we could tell a story from various selections of the archives, now that would be worth doing. And so we we sat down, I sat down with Alex Ward, who's the book editor at the times, and we we came up with a, a time frame and that, you know, not coincidentally is the, the time frame that I covered pretty much the NBA. I mean, I began in the late seventies at the post when the league was considered as David Stern has said over and over again, too drug infested, too black, yada, 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 that the league had, you know, a negative sort of connotation to it in the late 70s, even though it had some transcendent players like Kareem and Dr. J, um, you know, and was, you know, I mean, true fans of the NBA loved it. I mean, my first finals was, you know, Washington, the Washington Bullets and the uh, Seattle Supersonics. I, see, I didn't know that. I've been a D.C. guy for 15 years and I didn't I didn't know that was your first finals. Oh, yeah. The, the year that the Bullets won. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the next year, the. The Sonics won the rematch with that wonderful team. Jack Sigma, yeah. of course, has just been uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and they had, a, they, had, they, had, they had a song, Harvey, that actually went with their championship that was, that was sung by the group Shalimar. Do you remember it? I do not. It was, uh, I should have brought 
stump the Schwab, Howie Schwab's <laughs> on the show a little bit later today. Um, the the actual it was called Second Time Around. Uh-huh. And it was and I remember thinking, I love that team because I think Gus Williams was on it. Gus uh, Williams and DJ. You know, I remember Kevin DJ. Grevy, Kevin Grevy, who was a shooting guard for the for the Bullets, I mean, couldn't even get off I'm I'm of course, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. he could barely get off a jump shot against De- Dennis Johnson. That's how good DJ was defensively during the part of his career when he, you know, when he was a leaper. You know, he lost a lot of that athleticism when he wound up with the Celtics, but of course was a brilliant, you know, tactician of the game and and uh, clutch player. But so you know, those years, um, you know, there's an actual chapter early in the book called "Darkness Before Dawn" and. And and that, that those are the years that people were saying, you know, worried about the future of the NBA. And then, of course, the Bird and Magic era commenced with that 1979 championship college game in Salt Lake City. The two guys came into the league and, and, and you know, people sometimes look back and they say, well, and that was it. You know, it was a rocket to the moon, but it wasn't really. I mean, David Stern didn't even take over as commissioner until 84. And then they had teams on the verge of folding they had no salary cap, which they negotiated, you know, in the collective bargaining agreement, the drug plan, all of that stuff. You know, the, the bird magic era slowly took root and, you know, was really impactful by, let's say, 83, 84. Then Jordan came in the league and then it went from there. But yeah. so so that was the that was the 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 game plan with this book was to take those years. I mean, you could go back and, yeah, of course, into the 60s and then. And I wrote a whole book on the two Knicks championship teams of the early 70s. When the garden was, wait, what was it called? When the, when the garden was Eden. But when you go back that far, you're also, you know, you're getting into a, a time when, you know, that the sports section of the times was much smaller. Um, there wasn't that, you know, that aggressive feature writing and reporting. Yeah. Um you know the 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 the, the coverage the the, lead, the the paper itself the section itself was much more New York centric so you had a lot of Knicks coverage and you know Nets I guess when they joined the NBA but but you didn't have this sort of like national focus on the NBA the way you did uh, let's say in yeah. the 80s and then of course even more so in the 90s and on into this century. So we chose that group of years, let's say late 70s, darkness before dawn, until, and it runs through, obviously, uh, the book was wrapped up in late summer, early fall uh, of last year. So obviously it runs through the 2018 uh, finals. Um, And uh, so it, it, it captures, you know, more than one era. It's, you know, several eras, several generations um, that we explore throughout the from the archives of yeah. the uh, of the times. Uh, Harvey Aridan is my guest. He's the uh, longtime columnist, uh, sports columnist, and uh, covered the league and the Knicks uh, and everything else in New York, especially for the New York Times. Um, I joined him in 1994, and uh, I I don't know. I the funny thing about podcasts is Harvey. On one level, you're you, you, the great thing about it is you get to have a conversation and not just a pithy back and forth chit-chatting brainlessly with a weather nerd type of conversation. But this, the, the bad thing is sometimes when when you're allowed to think think while someone's speaking, you often lose track of what you were feeling a, a, while, a, a minute ago. 
And I'll tell you what, when you said that I that my stuff was uh, held up as well as anybody's or better than anybody in the book, I, I, I like I almost lost it on air. And it brought back all these memories because, like, I as you I know your own um, what I would call blue collar beginnings. I like I had I was one of the unlikeliest times hires ever, in my opinion. And and I can't still can't believe I talked myself into the job when I didn't have one. And Neil Amder, who basically hired both of us for different reasons and turned out to be smart for different reasons. I, I just man. Anyway, I never thought, you know, when I walked out of interviewing at the times, I threw my briefcase up in the air like I was Mary Tyler Moore. And 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 for you to say that all these years later, I, I literally got a lump in my throat and I was about, I got, I'm not going to lose it over somebody talking about my work. Stop it. Um, but at any rate, thank you for that. And secondly, um, so I don't get emotional. I want to move on to this part about darkness before dawn, because I thought th- this this part really got me when I was reading it, because I, I almost I. I fast forwarded to modern day NBA and and there's this line, white stars were already increasingly rare. In a couple of markets, there were no white players at all. In October, 1979, the Knicks broke training camp with their first all black roster, prompting a request from my post editor to write about this, about it in depth. In depth. I remember Peter Vesey in particular, writing a column uh, that either had the lead or in it, um, it was. It basically read N I G G E R Bockers. That's what, yeah, the, that's know, what people you know, called them, the N word Bockers. And I'm like going, "Oh, what?" And even then, I was I was a freshman in high school, and I somehow heard about that, and I thought it was awful. You know, here's the actual uh, story of that whole thing. I mean, I do. I I still have, in fact, uh, when I was do. You know, that I have like a weird assortment of clips, you know, paper clips. I stopped saving things I wrote, you know, in the actual printed paper years ago. And then I had a bunch of things in the in the draw of a, of a roll-top desk that took on some water in our basement when we moved to Montclair, New Jersey, and Beth inadvertently tossed out the desk and all the clips. So... <laughs> um, Sort of like my mother throwing out my comic books and baseball cards. <laughs> but um, so I have very few actual paper clips of things I've written through the years. But I do have some of those uh, post clips. And I and I in, in researching this book, I went and I said, well, lo and behold, I have the page of the New York Post that had my column twin next to Pete Vesey's column on that particular issue. So I, I wrote a column and I think I mentioned it in the book where I quoted Sonny Werblin, who at the time mm-hmm. was the president of Madison Square Garden. And he said something like, you know, we don't really think anybody cares in New York about this issue. You know, maybe in a place like Boston, which I, which I thought was interesting that he would just throw Boston under the bus. Um, but Boston was considered a much more racially polarized city than New York. Um, and then Peter, Peter had a column where he just kind of said, and and I'd have to go back and check to be precise, but my memory, if memory serves correct, what he what he wrote was, it's not it, you know he again dismissed that it was any kind of a major deal or whatever, and he said that um, it's not like anybody is going around calling them the and you know that right, and yeah. but the but the but just the sheer mention of that expression 
of using it to even say to even dismiss the 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 notion of it being a being a a problem or a big deal um you know people remembered the expression and it's funny because i think it was tnt did a did a special year, some years ago on what it was called whatever happened to michael ray and it was about michael ray richardson who was one of the players from that era in the Knicks. He was a mercurial, wildly talented guard, but a kid who was living his life out of control and wound up getting banned by David Stern under the drug plan um, and wound up finishing his career or playing much of his career in Europe. Um, the ship be sinking. The ship be sinking. Although, you know, just, not, just off on a tangent a little bit, I was – Part of that quote in the Knicks locker room, the Knicks were having a bad year, and we went and talked to him and uh, a couple of us, and you know we said something about you know what's happening with this team, and he just uh, he Michael Ray always had this terrible stutter, and he said I, I don't know the the ship be sinking, and I asked him well how low that should be go? the title of that should be a title of a book by the way yeah I mean but whether I asked, it's the whether asked, it's the White House current administration my life I don't know but that's a title of a book. It's a quote that's often used, you know, and it's credited to, you know, Michael Ray, the ship be sinking. But I asked the follow-up question, well, how low can it go? And Michael Ray looked at me and smiled and said, sky's the limit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one that's often I forgotten. Didn't know that. Oh, yeah, know sky's that. the limit. It was hilarious. But um, anyway, this, so TNT does, does this feature, this, this, this documentary, you know, Whatever Happened to Michael Ray, and they interview him in it. And, you know, he kind of casually throws it out there. Oh, yeah, you know, back in the early, you know, back in the, you know, in that in, when I was first coming in and we had, you know, the first all-black team, they were calling us the N-I-G-G, you know, and nobody. Now, did somebody say it, you know, after maybe they saw it in, in Peter's column? Perhaps, you know, young people, you know, young guys, you know, having a beer, something like that, you know, being being jerks. But... But but nobody I ever heard, you know, and certainly it was not something that was that was be that they, that team was being called uh, in public, certainly. So, yeah. you know, this thing that that whole thing kind of got exaggerated, um, you know, maybe you can argue it was in poor taste to even drop it. You know, I think Peter was trying to be glib in his column, but nonetheless, you know, the whole that whole thing kind of got a little but uh, it's it's remembered in sort of an exaggerated way. Yeah, but it I think it brings it brings to uh, mind in, um, that this this line white stars were, in, were already increasingly rare. There was a real sense that the dynamic of black versus white, bird versus magic, um, Boston uh, definitely more white uh, versus Los Angeles multicultural and more black. That that was part of the not that racial tension stoked the NBA, but that was the fact that there was an American-born white superstar in the league, and he wasn't, you know, floppy socks Pete Maravich, and it, it wasn't, and it wasn't like polarizing Rick Barry. Um, that, that, that this guy was so, you know, he, he had this game that came from not just the country, but uh, it seemed like the city too. He could pass and everything. Bird changed everything. Um, when I when I link liken it to today. Um, and I saw, I remember when Billy Hunter, the former player 
union executive director and Bird at one point said, yeah, you know, the NBA needs another American born white superstar to really take off. And I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't, I, I think this league, I'm not saying that LeBron and Steph and all these guys have transcended color and, uh, and that we don't see color because that's ridiculous. People who say that, God bless them. I grew up in Hawaii. I used to say it. I, everybody sees color. Everybody has their own unconscious bias. I don't know if you need a white superstar that's American born in this league anymore. I just don't because because the most, I don't know, I, I guess the most prominent one now would be Kevin Love, and he's certainly not a superstar. Yeah, I would, I would, say, I would tend to agree with you, Mike. I think that if we've grown – in any significant way, obviously race is not only still a, a, a major issue, the, the people who say we're in a post-racial society are, are out of their minds, we, especially what we see what, you know, the politics of today is dredging up. Um, but I do think that, you know, it was interesting, um, the guy in, in Salt Lake City recently who got into it with Russell Westbrook, right? Mm. And uh, he clearly was a guy who was discovered to be, you know, racist in his attitudes. He had he scrubbed his Twitter account, uh, you know, after the whole thing blew up. He had all these terrible things he had written about Westbrook and others, um, you know, that were part of his Twitter feed, and yet. He was a season ticket holder of a team that, you know, is pretty much as, you know, I mean, Ricky Rubio's on that team and, and what's his name? Ingles was a white player, but right. for the most part, it's an all black team. Yeah. You and Utah's, so, Utah's, Utah's uh, blacker as an organization as they ever been. And they used, even when they were playing the Bulls, they were sort of that, oh yeah, you got Adam Keefe, you got Stockton. You know, you you always had a, a Hornacek. You had a bevy of white players that you felt like, oh yeah, Utah. They all those Mormons. They identify with them. But you look now and you go, no. Well, I think I think that that sort of sums up what we're getting at here, which is that um, I think to a large extent, again, these are all generalizations, but that America, even if it doesn't love, you know, black people, it loves black entertainers. You know, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Denzel Washington, these are all guys who at the box office, right, transcended race, mm, right? That's, that, man, that, in, in a weird way, that's even sadder. It's a great statement, and I completely believe it. It reminds me of that do the right thing scene between Spike Lee and the, uh, uh, I can't remember who the character was. It was Danny, um, it was it was his son in the movie. Was it a Totoro? Was it John Totoro? John, John Totoro. Yeah, John Totoro and Spike Lee are at the table, and he's and um, and and Mookie Spike Lee's character looks at them and he goes he goes uh, he goes he goes uh, why why do you Pino why do you use uh, why do you use the n he said the n word and why why do you why is this guy a nut and he says and he goes well, what about Sammy Davis Jr. What about he goes that's different that's different they aren't uh, and I'm like wow. That was a, that movie was made in 18, 1989. Like you're right. How far have we come? We so yeah. You know, I mean that that guy. I forget his name. Shane something. You know, was tweeting out in the aftermath of that whole episode with Westbrook to Donovan Mitchell 
don't believe it, man. I love you. You know, and he was like, wow, this is this is really a, you know, a sad paradoxical situation. This guy wants to be part of this whole jazz experience at courtside, got these choice seats. And yet his attitudes in the heat of the moment, his real notions about African-American males comes out in his exchange with Russell Westbrook. So, yeah, I think I think we are, you know, we we are in a strange place where I do think I used to have this argument with Bill Roden at the Times. You know, Bill used to write things like that the internationalization of the NBA was in part a whitening of it. In other words, the U.S. was not producing white stars anymore so that, you know, the league was breeding, you know, players like Dirk and, you know, whomever, uh, you know, now obviously with Luka Doncic or Porzingis, you know, in other areas of the world to, to sort of whiten, to whiten, it broaden its appeal by having some more white players. And I used to say to Bill, I don't think like, you know, you can make a case that, that, you know, in most markets that, uh, having a guy who comes over who speaks Euro English, right, <laughs> is going to be more popular than a homegrown black star. You know, I just don't, I, I, you know, Michael, Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, Reggie Miller, go down the list. Oh. Those guys are going to be more marketable than some guy born in Latvia. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. Just, you're right to this. I mean, look how long it took Dirk Nowitzki to become sort of a an icon. I mean, it, it took him almost to the end of his career. Yeah, and, and part of it was be, part of it was because he came from Germany and he never played college basketball in the U.S., so there was no sort of a marketing campaign for, <laughs> for free beforehand. But but yeah, you're you're exactly right. Like these guys weren't going to ever uh, take over. Um, these guys weren't going to ever take over the game. Uh, the idea that we were outsourcing it. Well, more people like basketball. There's a guy now in uh, Maryland um, that I that I talked to the other day, and he's I think he's a sophomore, and his name's Bruno Fernando. He's going to be the first Angolan to, if not play in the NBA. I know for sure, be the first to dra draft it in the first round. And so you know, the international world doesn't uh, apply to just Euro people. I mean, it well, applies you know, to they, all, all countries. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of the... And Ben Simmons, I believe, is Ben Simmons, I believe, is half African-American. Well, you know, so is, you know, Tony Parker and, you know, Nene and all these guys yeah. who have come in the NBA, a lot of them are of color. And so... You know, I mean, the, having covered the Dream Team, which is another uh, aspect of the book, um, you know, that really is what launched this, you know, the whole internationalization thing in earnest. And that was about the guys in the NBA who were already there and the teams and the owners making more money by selling more jerseys and, you know, and TV rights all over the world. So, you know, did it broaden the appeal of the game? Did it, did it, has it changed the, the look of the game to a certain extent? Certainly the style of play the Euros have brought, um, into the league? Absolutely. But in terms of, of, of young American black stars, uh, being, you know, out, you know, out promoted, I don't see that at all. 
but again, that does not speak to sort of the, the racial climate in the country at large. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, Harvey Aridin's my guest. Uh, he's not only a friend, uh, more a friend than a colleague at this point. I worked with him at the New York Times for 10 years and have sought his advice on numerous things uh, for probably 30 now. Um, I, I have to say that he is the curator and the main author, edited and annotated by Harvey Arrington. The ele- it's called Elevated, The Global Rise of the NBA. Uh, it's, it's by the staff of the New York Times, of which I was one for 10 years, forwards by Jeff Van Gundy. It's, it's a great book, not just because I'm in it, but and, and people like Selena Roberts that I worked with and Harvey and others are in it, but it it covers basketball in a way that, I don't know, it needed to be covered by. And I'm not saying the Times was the only person to do it. There were great writers like Mark Heisler, the LA Times, and Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe that, that are that really seminal to the coverage of the league when it needed it in the 80s. And shoot, for that matter, a guy who hates my guts and wants to just basically put C4 around his chest and blow us both up, Peter Vesey, that's another podcast, that he his his contributions are immeasurable and um, it's too bad he's so bitter um, still. But I, this is the reason why I started liking Harvey Aaron. For anybody out there who's listening, like, he just had a way of crystallizing things. And he crystallized the way he wrote. He never got um, – he would have what I would call provocative takes, but he would do it in an elegant way where you, you just didn't go, oh, yeah, it's a, oh, he's, just, he's writing a tabloid headline. No, he, he was thoughtful. And, and, and also he had, a, he had a feel for nostalgia in the game that few people still have. And I want to read this, this just this passage from the night that Larry Bird had his jersey retired at uh, Boston Garden, the old Boston Garden, um, for some people, the only garden that ever existed. Um, and it was February 5th, 1993. It's in the book Elevated. And it starts out, um, well, I don't, I don't want to get into how it started out, but I love this paragraph here. It really, it really tell me, distills Larry Bird. What made Bird in Boston the perfect fit what he was that he was the sharp shooting country hick in baggy jeans and flannel shirt, headlining an arena known for dressing down from quaint to ratty. No mascots here, no cheerleaders, no clattering info boards and video screens commanding the fans to make some noise. Yet tonight, Boston, the Celtics and the National Basketball Association celebrated Bird's career for two solid high tech hours. NBC's Bob Costas signing on as a host at 7.37 p.m. and Bird bidding the fans farewell at 10.02. Time of show, two hours, 25 minutes, or about what it once took Bird to get, oh, 38 points, 16 rebounds, and 12 assists in an exhausting garden playoff night. Boy, that, so many things in, that, in, that, in those two paragraphs, but uh, you could feel the affection for the player, the affection for the time, and you just set the stage well. And uh, as my producer's listening on the other line right now, Bruce Bernstein, he's having chills because he's a longtime Celtics fan. Um, I, you know what I like about you, Harvey? You, you, you're as contemporary as you are old. You, you, almost, you almost have the, 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 the boyish exuberance of someone who still likes going to the games, but the sense and skepticism of a modern day sports journalist. And I, I don't think there's a better combination because the worst thing you can be in this business is jaded. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Mike. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, although, you know, I am subject to, you know, 
the idiosyncrasies of age that, you know, I remember a bunch of years ago um, going to a game, going to an all-star game. It was in D.C., <laughs> as a matter of fact. So I want to say it was maybe around 2002 or something like that. And I went, I hadn't been to one in a while, maybe five years or something like that. And I went to the game. It was during the years I was the Sports of the Times columnist. So, you know, I was spending, you know, covering Yankees in the World Series during the Jeter and Mariano area and going off to the Olympics and covering tennis. And so I hadn't made it to an NBA All-Star weekend. And I went down there and I was like, holy cow, I, I, this is like turned into a three-ring circus. You know, I, I was getting nostalgic for the the days of the early 80s when the media, you know, Friday night we'd have a, a little media gathering, you know, we'd have a couple of drinks. We'd wind up in some restaurant, Heisler and Sam Smith and, you know, people like that. And um, I was saying, I'll, I'm never going to come back to one of these things again. I just, you know, I've aged out, can't handle it anymore, you know. And then a bunch of years later, I want to say uh, maybe it was it was the year they went to, they were in Denver, and I think my kids were about 14 and 10 at the time. And they both loved the NBA, both loved sports. And I said to Beth, let's take the kids out to the NBA All-Star Game. I'm, going, I'm assigned to it. You know, I don't really want to go, but they asked me to go. And we flew out, and I experienced it completely different in a different way. I saw it through Alex and Charlie's eyes. And I remember we went to a practice, an all-star, it was an Eastern Conference, it was a Western Conference practice, and Shaq, or, uh, Shaq was, uh, you know, they were just kind of shooting around, and Shaq grabbed Dwight Howard. So it must have been the Eastern Conference. Maybe he was back with, with Miami by then. Um, he grabbed Dwight Howard out, and they were breakdancing in the middle of the floor. You know, <laughs> no, Shaq was still in L.A., but it was. Was he still in L.A.? I don't remember. Yeah, you're talk, so are you talking about friend. the D, talking about the D.C. All-Star game, right? No, no. This is one that was late. This is one in Denver. Where oh, I Denver. Went. Oh, no, this was 2005. So, yeah, he so we were either, with. I, I he might have just kids. he might have just been traded in that offseason. So, yeah. So my yeah. kids, you know, were, were there whatever year, whatever year it was, whatever practice it was. My kids were there. And they were watching this unfold. You know how Shaq could be, right? And the, oh, the smiles the on their faces. And then I remember, you know, the kids were like, you know, we went to like the various, like the, the Legends Brett Brunch on Sunday morning. And, you know, Earl Monroe, people that I knew, you know, were like, you know, coming up to me or I'd walk up to them and, hey, these are my kids. And they'd taken pictures with them. And I saw the way the kids you know, saw the game, saw the league, and it gave me a completely different perspective. So to your point about, you know, trying to stay contemporary, it takes some work to do that, you know, and you have to kind of put yourself in a younger person's shoes sometimes um, because, you know, as you age, you know, you do tend to think, see things differently. I don't think I live in the past, you know, I mean, like even, even the access, we used to sit courtside at the garden, <laughs> at the garden in most arenas. Oh. Well, you, well, know, you and, know what? I, I, I took that for granted. 
that was people can't even imagine it now. But but when you're sitting courtside at Madison Square Garden and you're sitting here and you can see Kevin Garnett check into the game for the first time in his rookie year and Patrick Ewing's checking back in with him uh, after getting a spell and and Ewing looking at him and and, and not knowing what to say, you know, put, puts out his fist for a little bump. And, and Kevin Garnett goes, what's up, Gramps? And and that's you see that in, you hear that and see that in person, and you're going, you can't. I mean, now they put us in the rafters. Yeah, no, the things that you miss. I mean, I remember speaking of Garnett. I remember doing it was like a an eight month. It was supposed to be part of a time series for the front of the paper on on the purview of American of America abroad, and I was assigned to do this piece, you know, on the cultural. And we chose the NBA, and I was writing about this this rookie that the Nuggets had drafted out of nowhere. He's from the Republic of Georgia named Nikolai Skidishvili, who wound up being one of the, you know, big busts of, of uh, recent, of, of the 21st century oh. in the draft. But his, his, his hero was Kevin Garnett. And so, you know, his, and it turned out his first NBA game uh, was, was in Minnesota. So I was there chronicling this stuff and the kid, comes off the bench late in the first quarter to play his first NBA minutes. And who is he matched up against but Kevin Garnett? And he goes into the game and he puts his hand on Garnett's, you know, they're inbounding the ball or something. He puts his hand on Garnett's waist to, you know, to, to, to check him, right? And Garnett turns around and it's like they're right in front of me and basically says, who the F do you think you're touching? Do you know who I am? Do you know who the f I am? <laughs> this went on for like five minutes. The kid was tra- the kid was traumatized on the plane going back to Denver that night. Oh, he was man. like say, crying to me. I I worship this man. How can he talk to me? I am oh. I am just kid. You know. So, KG KG ruined Nicholas Skidishvili's career. He, he tortured him. I oh, mean, it was like Jordan. It was like Jordan and Kwame Brown in practice. Yeah. So, you know, but these things unfolded right in your face. Yeah. And, you know, now, of course, we're saying, but even then, I try not to, you know, tell the younger guys. In my day, you know, I sat courtside and I could hear the squeal of the sneakers. Oh. It's changed. Oh, no, I, there, there's so many <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, I still remember I, Frank Isola and I and the beat writers of the Knicks in uh, – shoot it must have been mid 90s maybe late 90s and we're at we're in utah and stockton and malone you know off night it's you know the jazz are down about eight there's like six minutes left in the game and we're right behind the scores table and and um and all of a sudden there's a timeout jerry sloan's just railing on everybody's dropped every f-bomb imaginable and stockton inbounds the ball to malone i'm sorry Malone is about to inbound the ball to Stockton uh, at half court out of the timeout. And, and, uh, and stop and Malone looks at Stockton and right in our, our within earshot of us, he goes, Hey, and he goes, what? And he goes, let's go. Let's fucking go right now. And Stockton goes, all right, let's do it. And they go and they go on some run and they win the game. And I'm like, to be part to party to that moment, you felt like you were the jazz huddle. Yeah, yeah, you know, and all of us who have covered the league throughout the years have these little, you know, these stories that go with various events. I mean, that's one of the fun things, you know, we probably could have done more of this in the book. 
I, I think just, I, well, I just dropped about... the elevated on my foot, by the way. It's a heavy book. <laughs> It's, it's got, 500 it's got many pages. pages. Yeah, it's 500 pages. I just literally dropped it on my foot in my office. I can't. I, I wanted to scream, but I. It's a podcast. I can't. I don't want to get out of control. My wife but, already came in. You didn't hear my wife come into the office and go. Uh, uh, when, uh, are you done? A little bit ago, because <laughs> because uh, she did, and this is the kind of thing like I'm definitely going to edit it out. I can't believe we would even do that. It's unprofessional. But, uh, you know, I mean, these are the things. So, you know, I think there are like 15 or 17, something like that, postscripts to stories I chose that I felt were that lent themselves to contacting the particular writer to give us a little bit of a story behind the story. It's like a chunky paragraph um, that goes that that is just basically put, you know, right below the corresponding story because yeah. everybody who's covered this league, you know, has these kind of fun stories uh, that provide a, you know, an extra kind of insight. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think that the NBA, you know, more than any sport lends itself to that kind of rich insider material. And uh, so much of it, a lot of it is reflected in the stories, but then the postscripts kind of add a little more to it. Mm. Harvey Aridan, uh, I got a couple more minutes with him. He's um, he's the New York Times. I say I call him columnist emeritus because he completely still writes for them often. And he was hired by the same guy I was at a time. You know, I'm not going to blow too much smoke here because we've we've had some mutual admiration society stuff on the podcast already. But when Buster Olney, who I consider still, um, if not the best baseball journalist in America for a while he was ahead of anybody and until the the demands of television became so great that he couldn't write as much but you know he he basically was one he said hey look between he said between 1998 and 2002 he goes when Selena was writing the Knicks on a daily basis when you were writing the NBA column when Harvey was colonizing when I was doing baseball the Yankees on a he goes, I, I, I thought we had the best sports section in the country. And he said, not only do we get all the New York stories, but we wrote bigger stories about the the world and what it was like. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to agree with you. I thought, you know, we, we, we covered New York, but we also covered the world in ways that the Times, other pages of the Times always did. And and I, I still look at those. I still look at that time as almost a halcyon because because I feel like this is the one question I wanted to get you out on was I feel like, you know, newspapers were when I joined the times in 1994 and couldn't believe that I got a job there. And I went into what I call the three stages of any job, which is the first stage is you can't believe they hired your schmuck self and there's no way that you're going to fit in here. And the second stage of course is, um, oh my God, the osmosis of all these smart people that went to Ivy League schools and, and worked at better papers and, and, and it has caught on because I feel like I can hack it and I'm doing some of the work they are. And then the third stage, of course, is how did that incompetent son of a bitch get his job? I, I really, um, I never, I didn't get that at the Times till the very end. And, and there was only a couple people that I felt that about. And you weren't one of them for what it's worth. Well, certainly... I was not an Ivy Leaguer. <laughs> this is true. You were in my category. I think my college, the college I went to, is now defunct. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, but yeah, yeah, I guess. We, so, so I look at that. And I thought we had a great. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is this: I think we had a great sports section. 
I felt like newspapers were king then. Newspapers were still king when I went to the New York Times. And I don't know what year they stopped being king, whether it was Ariana Huffington, whether it was the fact that we were so dumb and um, that, we, that we, we thought we were going to scare people away by charging for our content. We didn't want to put up paywalls. Whatever it was, we, newspapers screwed up and we, 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 did not, we, we ceased to become king anymore. And not that television was king, but, you know, the, the Internet was king. And we didn't catch up to it till shoot in the Times and the Washington Post case just recently. So I guess what I would get to you is just like journalism as a profession, sports journalism in particular, in your mind, like, is it changed for the better, for the worse? Is it just where we are? I, you know, I, you know, I teach it uh, as an adjunct at Montclair State University, yep. which is three minutes from my house, and the students will always ask, "Oh, professor," which is a trip in itself, being called professor. <laughs> but they'll say, uh, "Journalism, you know, is it viable?" And you know, never really quite sure what to tell them because, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, I, I don't want to lie, and I also don't want to discourage them, and. It is a complex question because, you know, you can argue that there's a greater demand now for smart, great storytelling, uh, better ways to disseminate it, uh, to make it interactive, uh, to provide video and all that goes with it. Um, but this, by the same token, you know, because of what's happened over the last 15, 17 years, you know, pretty much around maybe, you know, 2000. 2004, when Craigslist first came out, and there there went classified advertising, and then you know it just was a steady downhill slog from there. Um, you know what's happened is that there is really no clear-cut formula for uh, how to succeed, how to how to how to do journalism, which is expensive. You know, and yeah. now what what's encouraging is what we've seen you know, over the last few years with the Times and the Washington Post and I suppose the, the Wall Street Journal doing well with the paywalls. But does that carry over to local news? I mean, most most big city dailies are still struggling. I mean, Denver has one newspaper left with a shell of a staff. Cleveland is now down to 30 um, guild reporters or oh. union-covered reporters. I mean, all over the country. Well, the, the, my beloved Sacramento Bee, uh, where you know I, I always tried to get a job at because it was one of the great papers in the country under the McClatchy ownership. You know, they they let go of Aileen Voicine, a, a mutual friend of ours, and I'm like, what What do you mean they they let her go? Well, they don't have a sports columnist anymore. I go, no, what? they have they have three sports, according to Aileen, three sports reporters on staff. I mean, you know, I, that, one to cover the Kings, one to cover the one to cover the Kings, one to cover the you know the the uh, the football teams and one to cover the baseball teams in in the in the Bay Area. That's it. So all around the country, you know, and then you go even more local to you know smaller papers, suburban papers, and they're all operating on shoestring staffs. Yes, yeah, some jobs have moved to the web sites like the you know whether it's the Undefeated or the Ringer, and but none of these sites you know, can be, can be, can stand alone without some big sugar daddy of a, of a, of a corporation keeping them alive. You know, we saw that with Grantland, the minute Bill Simmons fell out of favor, you know, ESPN got rid of it. So, 
you know, it, these are the questions that you have to ask about journalism. And as a result, let's face it, you know, I mean, I used to, as a newspaper junkie growing up, when I would travel around the country, Mike, the first thing I would do when I got off a plane was run to the newsstand and buy whatever, however many papers were in that city, right? The last few years that I was traveling for the Times, I would get into places like Indianapolis or whatever. I wouldn't even buy the local paper because it all looked so, you know, so thin and skimpy and, you know, generic. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, a state, that's a condemnation of the business when somebody who's grown up with newspapers and loved them won't even, you know, shout out a buck and a half to buy the local paper in whatever city I was in. Um, it's, uh, you know, who knows? It's definitely affected the quality, although there were still some wonderful <coughs> sports journalists, obviously, working around the country. And hopefully, you know, the formula gets figured out and a way to, you know, the athletic, of course, is a is a very interesting, you know, attempt at doing uh, non-commercial sports journalism on a, you know, selling it as a subscription service. Aren't they already um, laying off people, though? I haven't heard that. That could be. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if they are or not. But the I mean, thing my, that my, always happens yeah. with these hedge fund guys, Mike, is that they have these big ideas, whether it was, you know, the Sports on Earth or or Fan House at AOL. These people, you know, they get corporate money to support it. And then, like, they get the bills like, holy shit, it costs – it's expensive to stay in a Marriott in Boston during the playoffs. It costs, you know, that kind of stuff, how much it really costs to have your your journalist crisscrossing the country to cover the playoff, the NBA playoffs for two solid months. And then they get cold feet and they – again, they start to lay people off or they close down the site – Completely. So <clears throat> I, I, I hope it survives just because I have a lot of friends working there. Um, but and maybe it's because they haven't reached out and and offered me anything yet that I'm bitter and uh, refuse to subscribe to them. But but nonetheless, like, you know, I don't think you can survive if you're I don't think any purported sports journalism uh, venture can survive if your main goal is to grab other fans um from other newspapers and they're different like like if you're if you're if you're on a fan hunt uh, you know that your subscribers you're you're hiring the best beat writers in the country because you just want their twitter followings and their fans and the fans of that that particular fan base i to me you're going to get some real journalism in there the the bulk of it is going to be predicated on something you could get on a fan blog and I, I just don't think it's going to I don't think that works long term. It, it'll it'll be interesting. I actually, to be honest, I actually thought that they had a better business plan initially than some of the other sites. What I hate to see, uh, and, and we've seen this time and again over the years, that started with the National Sports Daily, which was a printed newspaper in the in the uh, in, I guess, almost at the late 80s um, that, you know, you hire some celebrity editor and then the celebrity editor goes out and hires all the biggest names that he can think of and then says, wow, people are going to swoon over us because we have Mike Lupica and we have Scott Osler and we have this guy, but we have no business plan. And so, you know, what are we offering? We're offering, you know, uh, an all-star team, but if you don't have a, if you don't have the, the, 
the proper business plan to go with it, you realize that journalists are basically, you know, that, that basically does nothing but, you know, uh, pad journalists, high, the highest paid journalists' uh, bank accounts <laughs> and, you know, and inflates their egos. But ultimately, the thing goes away in a year and a half. At least, I, I would say, I'll give the athletic credit for, for, for this much, that they seem to be saying, look, newspapers around the country, and they didn't say it, they didn't say it very eloquently. In, fa- in fact, we're kind of harsh about it. But newspapers around the country have stopped doing their jobs because they don't have the money to spend. I mean, you look at the Daily News in New York, you know, a, a once proud sports section. They have like six full-time sports writers. And they don't travel on the road. They don't cover any big national events like the Final Four. Um, that that and, section, for all intents and purposes, like the, the Sacramento Bee and others, when you, when you, when you, I guess, um, let people and let other news organizations take that field from you, you're dead as a section in my head, in my mind, well, right. you're, just, so the, you're, so you're the basically athletic, the walking dead as a sports journalism business. Right. So the athletics bis- initial business plan was to supply the, that what what's lacking or what's been, you know, what's been lacking more and more in the printed newspapers uh, and their websites because they just don't have the staff or the resources to travel around the country and try to produce local coverage to those individual markets uh, with a mix of some, you know, overview national coverage. Uh, and, you know, it maybe that's, you know, who knows, but uh, I have to say that that at least seems to me like a better business plan than just kind of putting together the all-star team. Mm. Uh, right. We'll see if it works. Okay. Harvey Ayrton, before I let you go, I can't, I can't let you go without this. And I'm going to flatter you one more time because you're not only someone I said at the beginning who mentored me professionally, but you mentored me personally. And this kind of, this kind of sums up both of those uh, compliments. Uh, When Bruce Bernstein, my producer said, um, Hey, ask Harvey why he didn't have a Wikipedia page. Come on, he's Harvey Ayrton. And I'm thinking, well, it's perfect Harvey. It got me curious and I went searching and I'm like, oh, yeah, Harvey's got the blog. And he's, you know, and and then I pulled up this piece about Ali. And I just want to read it to people because, you know, it was right after Ali died. And it's the kind of thing like I wished I read this in a paper or a magazine, but it's on your website. It just goes to show you that you can find good journalism anywhere. It, it reads like this. When the news was out, Ali had died. My son, Alex, texted me, R.I.P. Ali. He was in Philadelphia three time, three time zones away with friends. I was at out to dinner with an old newspaper colleague in Oakland's Jack London Square. You should write something, he said. And then you go into, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I still remember the night, uh, you know, the 1965 fight night. Ali fought Sonny Liston in a rematch of the bout in which he'd taken Liston's title. I lingered in the bathroom too long. My father yelled out, the fight is starting. By the time I finished my business and walked into the kitchen, he was unplugging the radio. Go to bed, he said. It's over. He didn't look happy. The kid with a big mouth had won, a knockout in round one, after dad had predicted that Liston would give it to him good. I became fascinated with that fight, staged in Lewiston, Maine. And you went there and did a story of it for the New York Times. And then at the end of this column, which I love, you know, you talk about how Ali connected you and your dad. And you have this line, you say, um, let's see, 
Alex was still texting me hours after the Ollie announcement, 2 a.m. back east Saturday morning, urging me to write something. Some of his texts, the most important athlete ever. Quote, he was part of what we learned in school, much bigger than sports. Quote, he's the only athlete that can top Jordan for me. I asked him, why are you still, what are you still doing awake? He texted back, this is too important. I was born in 1989 and I feel the impact. Before we signed off, he said, you raised me right. His appreciation for my helping him understand the magnitude of the man. I fell asleep thinking, thank you, Ali, for connecting the generations of your lifetime and presumably, hopefully, many more to come. Man, I almost teared up reading that. So, you know, it was such a beautiful tribute to my favorite athlete ever, a guy whose funeral I got to cover for ESPN um, in Louisville and probably my favorite assignment of all from the undefeated. And But, you know, you... It, it was a, it was about Ali, but it was about you and Alex and your dad. And well, I, I don't know. I'm a sappy and I loved it. And so anyway, to, go ahead. To sum up, to sum up, like the last 15 minutes of what we were just discussing, Mike, and journalism and the difficulty in it yeah. surviving. That piece I wrote, you know, did not obviously go in the Times because the Times had its Robert Lipsight and Dave Anderson and George Vesey and all the people who actually covered Ali in his heyday lined up the pieces were all in the can you know because ali had been ill for a long time so they had no need for me to write anything and so my son did you know alex did convince me to write something i put it on i wrote it on my blog which i almost never use i probably haven't written anything on it in a year and and so i whenever i uh publish it it automatically goes to my twitter feed and to my facebook page right so Somebody who followed me on Twitter is Richard Deitch, who is the media, at the time was the media critic for Sports Illustrated. And Richard read it and retweeted and said something like, you know, I really like this piece. He said this Times piece by Harvey Araton. He thought it was from the Times because he knows he, <laughs> he associates me with the paper. And then he later on, I think the next day, said, here are my top 10 pieces. Uh, you know, written about, you know, Ali in the wake of his passing, and he included it. And all of a sudden, I had all these people reading, you know, uh, my, my, this piece on my blog, the numbers of likes and all this stuff, and I got a lot of email from it. And what it, what it said to me was, you know, you don't have to be employed, even. You don't have to be, you don't, you may not earn a dime by doing it. But you can you can kind of work your way into the mainstream or the conversation on social media just because it exists. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you're ever going to make a dollar off it. So <laughs> that presents the conundrum of modern journalism. Thank you, sir. Uh, love you, man. And 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 I, I, I'm going to actually buy a copy of the book just just because you gave me one for free. I want to give one to my son even though he's eight, one day he'll read it and he can read some of my work and yours and uh, elevate it. It's the staff of the New York Times detailing the, the rise and renaissance of the modern NBA and the guy who curated and annotated and wrote a lot of it is my friend and my mentor, Harvey Ayrton. And thanks, thanks for being part of us, man. I, I really appreciate it, Harvey. Always enjoy it, Mike. And I, hopefully I will see you down the playoff road somewhere. Yes. Yes, sir. Full stop. Thanks for the timeout, Darlene. I needed it today because I've also got Howie Schwab 
the Schwab, Stump the Schwab coming up in just a minute. And first, I need you to hear from my friend, Monica McNutt, whose new show, Buckets, Boards and Blocks, is debuting this week on Pure Hoops Media. Hey, Pure Hoops fans, I'm Monica McNutt, and I'm pumped to announce my podcast rolling out April 11th, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. We're going to do it every Thursday. Hopefully, we'll have some conversations with your favorite hoopers. We'll get to their journey in the game, what makes it special, why they love the game, all of that good stuff. So please check it out. It's Buckets, Boards, and Blocks rolling out on April 11th every Thursday. Welcome back to the program. I am really excited to be joined today by a guy that – Bruce Bernstein, my producer, told me I need to have the Schwab on. And I go, Howie Schwab? And he goes, yeah, the, the Schwab, like from Stump the Schwab and all that stuff? And he goes, yeah. And I go, I want to say I met him once, but I can't remember. Howie Schwab. We, we did. Me. We did, when, Mike. When was it? When was it, Howie? We met up at ESPN one time. Oh, my God. It's got to be like seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, I I remember. All right, good. Um, so, so I had a three and a half year stint at ESPN. You, however, have an unbelievable stint there. You, you started. What was it? Nineteen eighty-eight or something? Nineteen ninety-eight. Eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Oh, eighty-seven. So you, so you went straight from there from the College and Pro Football News Weekly. Correct. I went from College and Pro Football News Weekly, where I was the editor, to. Uh, ESPN, where I was lucky enough to be one of the first, the first researcher, and we developed a research department that uh, turned out to be pretty special. And I was there for 26 years until uh, five years ago I was let go, and that's life. And the good news is I've bounced back and have done other things like Sports Jeopardy, and uh, now yeah. at Fox doing bracketology and. Uh, enjoying my life and moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm happy. Yeah, that's what I understand. Um, uh, belated congratulations on your marriage of a year ago. Thank you. And I only know that because I asked you about three seconds ago, what are you doing? So, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Howie Schwab, as people, uh, not, not everybody knows, um, was a, a graduate of St. John's in, I believe, 1982, I got Correct. out of I got out of high school that year, and I, I wasn't good enough to actually be recruited by anybody. While you were in the midst of watching some of the great Big East battles of all time, I was at Little Hot, Tiny Hawaii Pacific College um, in wow. Honolulu, and yeah, I couldn't even. I was I was like the eighth to twelfth man, depending on how bad I played that week. And but, however, we had an unbelievably historic moment over there. On December twenty third, nineteen eighty one, I am going to stump the Schwab right now. Do you remember what that moment was? December twenty third, nineteen eighty. Actually, December twenty third, nineteen eighty two. That wasn't. Uh, I'm trying. Michigan lost out there. Oh no! But I thought that was was that Alaska Anchorage or was that Hawaii Pacific? Oh God. There we go. Yeah, there was a bad. I remember Hawaii Pacific. Well, it was Hawaii Pacific. Was the, we went actually the most uh, famous was, Hawaii upset is Chaminade over Virginia. Boom! I mean, that, that you was, got it. You got it. Yeah, that was it. There you go. December twenty third, nineteen eighty two, and I only bring this up because one, you're about to break down the championship game for me, um, uh, Virginia versus Texas Tech, but two. I this is to me it's a great story and that uh, one of those ones that nobody will actually 
here outside of this podcast because it's so unique. You know, but Virginia has been on the losing end of two of the greatest upsets in college basketball history. One in the tournament last year against uh, UMBC. Merrill Baltimore County. Yep. 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 And, and, and two people forget. I thought, I still think it's the greatest college upset of all time. And NAIA school, think of, think about that, Howie. NAIA school of about 600 students in the hills of, not even the university of Hawaii. It was Chaminade university. It was a, Catholic school. They rented Quonset huts from St. Louis High School, and they beat number one Virginia and the great Ralph Sampson, 77 to 72. And I only remember it because I was a little Hawaii Pacific and my dumb coach, Tommy Ascenson, and I, I don't know where he is now. Uh, if, if he's dead, I don't, I guess God rest his soul, but I don't know. This guy <laughs> would not let us go to see Ralph Sampson and number one Virginia play. We practiced 300 yards from Blaisdell Arena at McKinley High School because we didn't really have a college gym. We were such a bad, small school. And Chaminade won. And I remember we all got out of practice and we go, who won? And some guy walks up and he goes, he had a, he had a Hawaiian accent. He, had, he spoke pigeon. He goes, brada, brada, Chaminade win. And I like, everybody just started going nuts. And I was like, no, that's not possible. Virginia was number one. I still don't understand how it happened. Do you even remember where you were? I guess you were in college still. I was, and I do remember because it was such a shock. Uh, the game wasn't on TV. People no. didn't have to see highlights of the game. Uh, people heard about it and was like, are you serious? The, this guy, Ralph Sampson, they lost? I mean, I, that that team had Othell Wilson. I think I had Rick Carlisle. Yep. I mean, that, I mean that that team was loaded and was a really good team. And Chaminade was a bunch of NAI kids. If I remember, right, Merv Lopes was the coach. Very. And, oh, see, I knew I brought Howie on for. And uh, oh, the kid who had the great game. Oh my God, I'm it just spaced. But uh, uh, for for Chaminade. Yeah. Yeah, his name was um, his name was Tim Dunham. And uh, yes, Tim, there you Tim, go. Tim, Tim Dunham was a six-two skywalking guard, um, and he he took an alley oop behind Samson from one of the other players, and his six-foot-two Jerry curled picked out fro frame dunked on Ralph, and it, the place went nuts. Um, the only reason they did have some some TV footage. But they never it, it wasn't a game that was televised. It was sort of like, you know, if you were a local news crew, you went, oh, the number one team yeah. in the nation's down the corner. They're going to blow out Chaminade by 50. Let's go get a picture of Ralph Sampson. And a couple of them. Exactly. Had. But to this day, I've tried to I've tried to pitch this documentary to uh, and, and people don't and people love the story and they can't believe it. But they they, they won't touch it because they can't find any videotape. Well, Somebody. that and uh, half the players probably, who knows where they are. I mean, well, finding I, half of them for the documentary. But no, not yeah, having any true. video of the game. I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure a local news crew probably shot a little bit. Lord knows where that ended up. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, but they had like... With uh, technology yeah, now, they, maybe, maybe they trans put it on, uh, put it somewhere that they can use it. But uh, I haven't seen very much of it ever, and... That story's been told so many times now. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, there's there's all kinds of great stuff, but I I, I think it it's sort of a, an apropos story only because tonight Virginia has been uh, you know he's the number one seed. 
Um, they weren't the overall number one. That was Duke. But but they're going in. They we went into the Final Four as a slight favorite to win the whole thing. And they get by by the seat of their pants um, on Saturday night. I mean, I, I still can't believe that that game. Do you uh, – Everybody's saying that double dribble was a was a crime against humanity. I didn't see it at the time. Uh, the officials probably should have seen it. Uh, I think people only made a big deal out of it after the fact. Did you when you watched it? What did you think? I did see it, and I did think it was a double dribble. But then I thought it happened so fast that maybe the Auburn player deflected it and couldn't tell, and said, "Okay, the ref must have known. Let's okay. Oh, yeah. there we go." Boom, and then the, the Kyle guy shot in the foul. And yeah. A couple a couple of things. One, yeah. you got to go back to the fact Virginia got here by beating Purdue on a missed free throw, back tap, and then the ball going oh. to Dikete for the shot that tied the game that sent it to overtime. Oh. That was pretty improbable in the first place. Yeah, I mean then, the Klein, Klein kid wasn't missing hardly at all when he, I, you know, I did, I forgot that he missed the free throw, but yeah, they, and, and yeah, go ahead. Then to come back and Virginia down four late, Kyle guy hits the big three to cut it to one. If they don't make that shot, they don't advance either. No. Then to come back and then the the Jerome double dribble followed by the guy three-point attempt and gets fouled. And for Kyle Guy to just walk up and hit all three so calmly was very impressive. And uh, Auburn, you know what? That was a foul. Plain and simple, it was a foul. Oh, yeah. No, he jumped into him. I like that the Gene's territory uh, comes in and says, look, uh, we, we call it A to B. If you leave the, your foot and you move in the air and you jump into the guy, it's a foul. And you, you alter the shot. It was good. Yeah, but he's still got to make the free throws. And, and I'm thinking you know, Jay Adonde had a great uh, had a great line on Twitter. He said something like, um, once Jim Nance said, um, called him Mr. Indiana Basketball, you knew he was making all three. <laughs> I thought that was well, great. Well, I'll tell you what, earlier in the game, Nance made a comment about, uh, I forgot who it was, who hit, it was an 81% free throw. Sure, I go, he's just jinxed him. And sure enough, the kid missed one of the two. And, you know, for Virginia to get here is amazing. But what's really incredible is Tony Bennett last year was so classy after the loss to UMBC. Mm. The first time a 16 beat a one in men's Division One history. And now for Virginia to come back from that, come back from adversity this year at times. Uh, and this is a team that lost to Duke twice. Yeah. Uh, you know what's really interesting about this final? Both of these teams lost in their conference tournaments. Florida State beat Virginia in the ACC semis. Texas Tech lost to West Virginia, who was horrible. Oh, that's right. I mean, and people forget about that. That's right. Bob, 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 Huggins, Bob Huggins had one of his worst teams. Yep. And so now... You talk about it's a little bit of an improbable final because there's no Duke, there's no Kentucky, there's no North Carolina. But you know what? It's going to be an interesting game because this game is going to be one in the 50s. It's going to be a low-scoring game. You like a low-scoring game. Um, lastly, I I don't want to bet against Texas Tech because 
I, I, I'm worried that if, if you put them into a room, and I don't know if you if, watching the game last night, Michigan State and Texas Tech, I swear there were kids on that team that were like tw- both teams that were like 28 and had a mortgage with minivans. They like, like they looked <laughs> like they were they looked old. Matt Mooney does. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, uh, going, hey going. Matt Mooney started at Air Force, then went to South Dakota. Now is at Texas Tech. Tariq yeah, no, Owens no. started at Tennessee, went to St. John's, now at Texas Tech. I mean, it, the transfer rules, it's really interesting. Yeah. The, the transfer rules are benefiting this team. Uh, you look at Virginia, uh, they've been steady all year with Kyle Guy and DeAndre Hunter, Dikite, uh Jerome. I mean, they're a solid Neither team is that deep. Both teams are so good on defense, both holding opponents under 60 points a game. I mean, the stats are incredible. Virginia has held 27 opponents under 60. Texas Tech has held 21 under 60. I mean, under 60 in this day and age with the three-point shot and the speed of the game. I'm convinced if, Clay Thompson, if Clay Thompson and Steph Curry walked onto that court tomorrow, uh, Monday night, and, and those guys would be both be punked by the Texas Tech defenders. These guys, like, I've never seen a team, it's almost like an overcorrection um, from all the offense we've been seeing. I've never seen a team play defense like this and just be so unstoppable. Um, I guess it depends on how the game is called, but I, both teams, you know, Virginia's, Virginia's got the, the pace from the 1950s and Texas Tech has got the defense from the bad boys and the Pistons. I... I I want Virginia to win. I don't know if I would pick them. What? Where are you? Uh, I picked Virginia before the tournament, Ooh. Uh, so I'm going to stick with them. But I, I can't really go against Texas Tech when you consider what they did against Michigan when they held them to one for 19 shooting threes. They held Gonzaga, a team averaging almost 90 points a game, to 69. And that's the only team to score 60 against them in the tournament. Four of the five opponents have been held under 60 points. And that's against quality teams. I mean, even North, Northern Kentucky and Buffalo early in the tournament. Buffalo had a great year, and yet they they were held in check. What they yeah. did to Michigan, what they did to Gonzaga, what they did to Michigan State. One other stat that blows my mind. Both of these teams are so efficient. Texas Tech against Michigan State, seven turnovers. Virginia against Auburn. Eight turnovers. In this day and age, the the ability to be that efficient, to not make mistakes, and now going against these defenses, it'll be interesting. I think the team that minimizes turnovers, the team that can control rebounding uh, and shot selection, both of these teams are so efficient. Virginia shot almost 50% last night against Auburn. Uh, It didn't seem it, but both of these teams – take good shots for the most part. Mm. So there were a couple uh, – Moretti last night threw up a couple of bricks that were incredible. But uh, I think this is going to be a really intriguing game. It's not a sexy game, but uh, defense will rule, and defense is ruled in this tournament by these teams getting there. All right. Howie uh, – Howard Howie Schwab, um, the Schwab. Everybody knows him. They call, they've called him the Sultan of Sports Trivia. His bosses have called them other names I don't want to get into. And the bottom line is, um, 
it, look, I wouldn't, I'd be remiss if I didn't say um, thank you for what you've contributed to the industry. I've always been one of these guys who is uh, more into celebrating the game than calibrating it. But like the information, the way in which you put, the way in which you started a, a, um, a what I would call a machine that's taken off to leaps and bounds. I, I you know, it's just it's something we need in a world in which there's only opinion, it seems, we still need to be grounded in facts. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I tell people on this show and other places, um, whenever they spit out something that just completely nullifies my half-baked opinion, I say, please, don't let the facts get in the way of my crap. Um, you're, mm -hmm. you're ruining it for me. And so anyway, but yeah, that, well. that's my long-winded way of saying thank you. And and if, on the way out, I need to ask you, like, what, like, if you had to say how the the business has changed for better or worse, given your history, what would you say? I, I think a lot of it has changed for the better in terms of technology, in terms of ability to develop statistics and, and get the information out there. Uh, I think it's turned a negative in some ways in that uh, some sports media are more concerned with the dollar than they are with the product mm. uh, and that's unfortunate and I think that's happened in a lot of places a lot of good people have lost jobs because of that uh, which is disappointing but you know sports there's a greatness in sports there's a drama in sports look at the drama of the Virginia Auburn game Virginia's mm. up 10 you think Auburn's dead Auburn comes back takes the lead and then of course the Kyle guy and Ty Jerome endings and uh, you'll be talking about that for years. Uh, you're talking about Chaminade, Virginia now, years later. You talk about NC State and Jimmy V cutting down the nets. Yeah. You talk about Villanova beating Georgetown. There are so many great moments in sports, and sports has so much of a positive in your life that uh, I think it's really important to enjoy sports, to treasure the moments, to appreciate the moments. And uh, the other thing about sports media is uh, sports radio and the negativity and the oh. fans and Twitter and, and the way that people are so negative at times. Oh, this is the, wrong. The, that's wrong. The civility has just disappeared. I mean, it, it means you used to what, what people used to call busting somebody's balls and they would take it in stride. Nowadays, everything's a blood feud and, and it's, it's a personal war. And, the one thing I like, I guess I got everybody was like, hey, it was great. We finally showed passion in Washington a week ago and when, when the whole town booed Bryce Harper and all I kept and all these kids were wearing trader shirts. And all I kept thinking was, you know, I, I don't want to ever take my kid to a game where he learns to denigrate the opponent more than celebrate the hero that I came to bring him to see. I just don't want to. And I know that sounds sappy and sentimental and old school, but I don't want that. I don't want that world. I totally agree with you. Thank, thank you for the time. I, I, I do. I want to catch up with you again. And like, I don't know if I'm down there, let's, let's grab food or something. Absolutely. Love to do lunch or dinner. Sure. All right. Thank you so much. Great, Mike. Uh, thank you. All right. Howie Schwab, our, our final guest on the show this week. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Longer show than usual. Thanks for staying with us. And thank you to Howie Schwab and Harvey Aridan. Obviously, I'd also want you to listen to Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozloff and Adam Stanko. 
and also our other podcast, Pure Hoops with Eric Newman and BJ Armstrong. Both tremendous insight, thoughts, levity that you won't get anywhere else. And of course, my friend Monica McNutt, who comes out with Buckets, Boards, and Blocks this week. Jeff Torini, thank you. Bruce Bernstein, thank you. Pure Hoops Media, thanks for showing some belief in this show and this product. I love it. And uh, I love talking basketball through the lens of life. Peace. See you next week, everybody. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.